Let me pray. Lord, thank you for um, today. Thank you for this opportunity to be able to preach and, and teach your word. I pray, Lord, that you would find me faithful as I, as I preach the word. God, as we look at this particular text today, there's no question that there's, um, there's lots of emotion when we look at the idea of divorce and remarriage. And, and God, even oaths, there's, there's not much debate on that. We all know that we should be truth tellers. But as we look at divorce and remarriage, there's always emotion. Um, and so, Lord, I pray that you would come now and help me speak these words by the power of the Spirit to be true, to be um, courageous, but also, Lord, that you would help me be sensitive and that for all of us, those who are also hearing these words, Lord, that you would um, help us all see the truth in your scriptures, conform our lives to what it means, and see that our hope, as in every week, is only in the gospel. So be with us now as we, as we go through your word. May it not just be an academic exercise, Lord, that would not be what we desire, but may it be something that is life-changing for us um, and continually progressively sanctifies us and makes us more like Christ. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're in Matthew 5, as I said, and just to give you a quick idea of what's going on in the text, we're going to be starting in verse 31, so we're, we're going to be in 31 through 37. Um, but let me give you kind of a, a big picture idea of what's going on, of where we are in the Sermon on the Mount, so you'll be able to dive in with us. So... Um, this book, Matthew, was written primarily to a Jewish audience, and we've been brought up to speed about how Christ, uh, how he started his ministry and how he began his ministry, and he begins his first set of teaching there in Matthew chapter 5. And so Matthew 5 through 7 is the Sermon on the Mount, the kind of big picture of chapters 5 through 7 is the Sermon on the Mount. And he, in uh, 5, 1 through 12, does the Beatitudes, where he basically preaches the gospel. We know it's the gospel. Uh, 4.23 tells us that he went about preaching the gospel of the kingdom. So as we look at, at the Beatitudes, we know that this is Christ telling them what the gospel is, and namely the gospel that um, Jesus came to die for our sins. And if we would be meek, if we would be hunger and thirst for righteousness, we would find ourselves convicted for our sin, we'd be declared pure in heart. We would become peacemakers, seeking those that would come to Christ and that we, as we are peacemakers, we'll be persecuted. So he, he preaches the gospel. And then in 13 through 17, um, he talks about what it's going to look like to be a person that is um, a Christian. In other words, you'll be salt and you'll be light in this world. And then after that, um, he knows, because this is a Jewish audience, they're automatically thinking, why aren't you talking about law yet? Surely you're going to start talking about law. So he goes to 17 through 20 and, and helps them see that he hasn't come to abolish the law. That's what he says in 17, but he's come to fulfill it. And, he, he, and this idea of coming to fulfill it, and t he tells us in 20, he says, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. So he starts unpacking the idea that the law isn't given to us um, in order that we can just conform to rules and have an external change. Instead, um, the saints of the Old Testament a lot of them understood this. The law was given to help us understand that we're supposed to have a heart change. That's why you read in Psalm 119 people saying, I love your rules. I love your statutes. And this is an idea that his heart has been conformed to know and love God. And so um, after that, building on this idea that he's come not to abolish the law but fulfill it, he's going to take the next, next 
six sections, basically, more than likely in your Bible, six sections, the rest of chapter 5, and unpack misunderstandings of their law. We're going to see six of them, actually, in this verses 21 through 48. You're going to see six misunderstandings. And basically, um, I've called them six antithesis. And that's just where Christ is contrasting, um, where these were the ideas of what you used to believe, but instead, you're not understanding them exactly correct. I'm going to help you understand what the real intention of the law is. And we see that by these little words. You can see in 22 um, where he says, but I say. He's saying, you've heard that you shouldn't murder, but I say. You see in 28, you've heard that you shouldn't commit adultery, but I say. Um, you see in 31, whoever issues, um, whoever divorces his wife, but I say. So you can see, but I say in 34, but I say in 39. And so what he's doing is he's correcting an understanding that they had adopted. He is not saying that you need to... Um, throw out the Old Testament teaching. What he's actually saying is that you've not understood the Old Testament teaching exactly. And so I am going to come and correct your understanding of that Old Testament teaching. And he has the authority to do this because he's Jesus. Only Jesus would have the authority to be able to do this and correct what would be the misunderstanding of the Old Testament. Um, and so as we're, I've also said, as we're going through these next six sections, you, you could be... Um, you could be feeling like, okay, well, this is just rules. And so what I'm supposed to do now is as I hear these rules that um, I'm not supposed to murder or I'm not supposed to have anger, I'm not supposed to lust, I'm not supposed to get... You could hear these as rules and just start following rules again. But that's not the idea. He's already painted the picture for us in the Beatitudes of the Gospel. So based on the Gospel, these things are, be, are being misunderstood. And so what he's saying is this. Um, don't miss the gospel in the Beatitudes and just hear these as rules and start keeping these rules just like the Pharisees. Instead, believe in the gospel, let your heart be transformed, and the reason why you're going to follow these six antitheses, these, new, these right understandings of the law, is because you've had a heart change and you want to obey God. You want to live out um, a life of worship for Him. So, there's a little bit of a difference there. It's not just more rules. Instead, he's, he's driving into the, to the heart and wanting you to conform your life to a life of worship of him based on the gospel, not just outward keeping rules. So the way I'm going to do this today is um, instead of starting with divorce and then going to oaths, I'm going to go down to oaths 33 through 37 and then come up to divorce um, because um, I think that ending with, with divorce and ending with um, that this is a picture of the gospel is one of the best best places we can end in a sermon. So we're going to go down to 33 and start there and then come up to divorce. Um, so my daughters have a game that they've started just the other day, uh, uh, maybe about a week or two ago. I heard this game that they've just started. I've never heard them play it, um, but I don't know if they've even been playing it. But they have this little game that's called Guess If My Yawn Is Real or Fake. Um, I promise you. And it's predicated on the fact... This game is predicated on the fact that if you're a liar, the game is not going to work. Um, so here's the game. One yawns, and then the other has to guess if that yawn was real or fake. Um, so it's, it's not really... But here's the idea. The yawn, the yawner must truthfully tell if that yawn is true or fake. And so it's just, oh, what is it? And it's, obviously that was fake. Um, and so how did you know? And it's, like, it's always a big mystery that you can guess the right answer. Um, but the idea is this. If you are a liar, the game's not going to work. It's just not going to work. Um, 
God wants us, and we learn this at young ages because we'll eventually, I'll see this in one of them. One of them doesn't like the fact that they know, and so they'll just lie. Oh, that was real, or that was fake. Obviously, it, w- it wasn't. Um, and so God is, is wanting us, even at young ages, to understand, and you're going to see little kids lie in, in situations and games or, or even for bigger things. They always want their way. But as we look at this text here, um, there's an there's a antithesis that he's going to draw where he's going to say, all right, don't have oaths. Instead, just, just tell the truth. Let's look at the text, and I want you to see it. In 33 through 37, it says, Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. So in the Old Testament, there was an idea where people would come and swear an oath. And he's saying, um, You've heard it of old, and you should not, you, that you should, if you're going to swear an oath, you should, you should always keep this oath that you've done. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is the footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not make an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. So um, the fourth antithesis that I want, you can go ahead and write this down. The fourth antithesis that he's saying, um, kind of based on the oath idea, is this. Christians should simply be truthful when they speak. It's not really a hard thing to understand. But the idea of the whole verses 33 through 37 is telling us that we should be truth tellers whenever we speak. All right, so let's, let's kind of look at this for a second and, and give you an idea of what's going on. Jesus is referring to um, Numbers, well, um, among many verses, Numbers chapter 30, verse 2. Um, where it says, if a man vows a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by a pledge, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds from his mouth. So um, vows were pretty common back in the Old Testament times. And if you vowed a vow to the Lord, you had to keep it. Um, and so this, this idea for numbers is um, if you make any vow to God, you're supposed to keep it. Well, there became, obviously, because Jesus is saying... Um, an antithesis here, but I'm saying to you, he's correcting their understanding. As that progressed on to um, first century Judaism, it just became a mess. They started taking this idea of vows and really just kind of distorting what it, the main uh, point of it was. And so the truth is that in the Old Testament, once the Lord's name had been invoked, once you had said, I'm going to vow this in, and I'm going to do it in the Lord's name, the vow became absolutely binding. You had to do it. But here's the idea. Listen to the text again, and and this is just one among many in Numbers. As we read this, it it sounds like making a vow is okay. He says, if a man vows a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by pledge, so if he does it, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds from, from his mouth. So it sounds like, as we hear that, vowing a vow is okay which makes it so confusing as we read Jesus' words in 34. But I say to you, don't take an oath at all. So <laughs> it sounds like it's okay, but Jesus is coming and saying, don't do it at all. Um, now, first thing is, Jesus is teaching in an antithetical fashion. Um, so he's not saying that we can't take oaths in courtrooms and things like that. More than likely, I know some people have, have said, well, since it says this, then I can never take oaths in courtrooms. I can never do that kind of stuff. More than likely, that's not what the point is. Instead, um, what's going on is the Pharisees by this time have built an entire system around oaths 
that they were missing the entire point of the Old Testament oaths. Um, they had created a system where um, they could just play semantics and not have to keep their vow. In other words, um, why is Jesus explaining this to people? Why is Jesus even having to approach the idea of oaths? It's because um, in the first century, much like today, uh, lies just became the expectation of people, um, especially by a vow. They would say, um, for example, they would say, if you swear by Jerusalem, you're not bound by the oath. But if you swear towards Jerusalem, then you are bound by the oath. Well, it's just like, you know, quit playing semantics. You know, the whole system had just become where we're going to expect lies. And so Jesus, um, this is a quote right here from D.A. Carson, because this is just foolishness. If it's by or toward and one I have to do and one I don't. Jesus just is, knows this entire system that had been built, missing the whole point of the oaths. And D.A. Carson says, if men are going to play such games with oaths, then Jesus will simply abolish oaths. He's interested in truthfulness and it's constantly constancy and its absoluteness. So um, Jesus isn't sp- speaking out against oaths per se, but instead the abuse of oaths, um, which you can see where this whole little thing of not swearing by or towards. We know that in the Old Testament, if you swear by the Lord's name, it's binding. That's why it says in 34 and 36, um, don't take an oath by heaven, because technically they're saying, well, if I take a, an oath by heaven and that's not God, then I'm okay. If I take an oath by earth or by Jerusalem or by the hairs on my head, then I don't have to keep it. Um, if I take the oath in God's name, that I have to. But I'm just going to this time swear an oath by heaven or by earth. And that's why Jesus is saying, um, those are mine. <laughs> that's why he says, don't just swear by, if you swear an oath by heaven, that's the throne of God. So it doesn't matter if you don't do it in God's name. If you do it by heaven, that's God's throne. Or if you do it by earth, that's God's footstool. In other words, it all is God's anyway. It's the same thing whether you say it by God or whether you say it by heaven or whether you say it by my head. All of it's God's. So don't just play the little semantic game. Um, The point is this. The whole application comes down to verse 37. Um, Let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. You should have a little footnote that probably says comes from the evil one. Um, so the point is this. If you're going to speak and you're a believer, you should tell the truth. That's it. James picks up this idea in James 5.12 where he says basically a same type of verse as verse 37 where let your yes be your yes and your no be your no. When Christians speak, it should be truthful. Here's how the gospel of the kingdom relates to this. Because all of a sudden, all you've heard is just rules here. You just heard, I need to tell the truth. That's the rule. But here's, here's how the gospel affects you and makes you a truth teller. It's not that you're just going to white knuckle and bear down and tell truth because I've got to tell the truth. I'm a Christian. Instead... Um, The gospel is that you have been cleansed in soul. And not only have you been cleansed in soul, that you have been cleansed in mind. And the cleansing of the mind uh, means that we now have Christ's control over our thought life. And not only over our thought life, but also over our tongue. The gospel has come and cleansed you completely and made you and given you the ability to be a truth teller. The gospel means that we can be people of the truth because we have the truth, Jesus, living in us. So now we're free to tell the truth. 
We have the ability to tell the truth. So your truth-telling is not built on you just making sure you remember to be a truth-teller. Instead, it's built on the gospel that Christ is in you. The truth himself dwells in you, and you are able to tell the truth. So what does this mean now in life? This means we don't nuance statements just to tell enough and not have to tell everything. Um, We don't tell half-truths. We tell the whole truth. So how do you run your business? If you have a business, do you run it honestly? How do you explain to your client um, whenever their needs are supposed to be met right now, how do you explain to them? Um, Is it, well, you know, we've had some things happen and because of the stuff and you're dancing around trying to give an answer, or do you just... You tell the truth, like, this is what's going on. This is what's happening. Christians are to be truth-tellers. How do you speak to your children? How do you speak to your spouse? Um, if, if your spouse finds out something, do you tell him or her just enough? Or are you a truth-teller? Because here's the deal. The gospel has freed you up to be a total truth-teller. The reason why is there's no condemnation. You can be as open and as honest with every single person that you need to be as open and honest with, like your spouse and your clients or your children or whatever, because there's no condemnation on you. Sure, there might be consequences, but all of the wrath of God has been put on Jesus. So you don't have to fear condemnation. So God has, Christ has died for us to free us up to make us truth tellers. So the, the fourth one and we're going to go backwards to number three, is that Christians should simply, should simply be truthful when they speak. All right. Um, which moves me over into 31 through 32. And just a couple things on this, um, because this is getting into some, some interesting language. And, and, and notice, um, context is always key. Matthew hasn't r- written this gospel in a way that's just kind of you know, sparingly throwing stuff around. And Jesus isn't preaching this message um, in a way that, that isn't falling in line with things. So notice the context in which he's even placing this. He's putting in front of it the idea that lust um, is equal to adultery. And then afterwards, he's telling us that oaths are important. As Christians, we should be truth tellers. And then in the middle of that, he's going to talk about divorce and remarriage. So a couple things before we get started into this text, and I'm, I'm going to read it. <clears throat> First, let me say that I plan on giving a much more um, detailed sermon whenever we get to... Jesus has a huge, long teaching in, in Matthew chapter 19. And so when we get to that, I'm going to unpack it um, as detailed as I can um, because Jesus speaks, on length, um, speaks in length on it then where I will. So here's my goal is instead to keep it in the context of the sixth antithesis and, to, and remember what's the idea of how this relates to the law and that Jesus is um, correcting a misunderstanding of the way uh, they used to understand divorce and remarriage. So we're going to stay in that context and we get to Matthew 19. I'm going to give a much more, de- although I am going to be pretty detailed today. I'm going to um, address lots of things and all the ideas on this. The second is this. Um, every single one of us in this room is probably affected by divorce in some way. Um, every single one of us in this room has probably been in some way affected by divorce, whether it's us personally whether it's our brother or our sister who's been divorced, whether it's our parents that have been divorced, or whether one of our parents have been divorced and then remarried, and now 
that's our parents. Like every one of us more than likely, and so we have stepbrothers or stepsisters. Every single one of us has been more than likely affected by divorce in some way. I'm, I'm along with you. I'm affected by it as well. Um, maybe not as close as some of you, but I'm definitely affected by it as well. So um, because of this, extreme sensitivity in this subject, of course, is, is needed because this, this whole subject is full of emotion and more than likely um, pain in our lives. Every single one of us has experienced some kind of pain, more than likely, whether it be small or large. So my goal here for us is to look at this text. And, and because I know that we're, we're approaching this with some level of pain, with some level of um, personal emotion involved in it, my goal here is for us to look, for, look at the exact straightforward meaning of the text and not necessarily let emotion cloud the way we understand the text, but... I'm not going to tell you to just throw your emotion completely out because that's impossible. Like, I can't tell you not to feel something. You know, I can't say, don't feel sad if you feel sad. You can't just like, okay, I don't feel sad or I don't feel emotion. Um, so instead, I'm going to ask you to look at this text in a straightforward way and not let your emotion cloud it. But I do have a destination for the emotion, which we're going to come to at the end. Um, so I want us to look at this and not let emotion triumph over truth. Instead, let the truth of Scripture inform our emotion and let our emotion have a destination at the end. Um, so as we said last week, Jesus is wanting to take their misunderstanding of the law and teach them the correct way to understand it. And he also desires obedience, not just outward conformity, but an inward change of heart. And this inward change of heart is to be motivated by love. This inward change of heart is to be motivated by joy in keeping the, the um, rules or the laws or what Christ is telling us, the command that he's given to us. We're going to keep it because we're motivated by love and joy based on the gospel that we've been saved. Um, D.A. Carson, as he's unpacking this, um, this is just a... Uh, a really good kind of opening summation statement. He says this, just like the previous section, verses 27 through 30, where Jesus is telling us that lust is equivalent to adultery. In this section, Jesus aims to do the same thing, meaning he's going to um, say that divorce, um, at least in the cases that doesn't meet the exception clause, divorce is equivalent to adultery. That's the straightforward reading of it. Now, um, what's going on here? Let me read it, and then we're going to let you see where all this is coming from and why Jesus is making an antithetical statement. In other words, you've heard it said of old, but I'm going to correct that misunderstanding. It says this, And it was said, Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now, I'm, I'm going to ask that you stick with me the entire time. Just stick with me the entire time. Don't let your emotions become overwhelmed as we look at these, these texts. Stick with me the entire time as we, as we unpack this. All right. So the first verse in 31 says, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. Christ is... Quoting Deuteronomy 24. So if you, if you want to flip with me, let's just go ahead and flip back. It's in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. Um, and 
We're going to look at Deuteronomy 24. And I want you to get an idea um, of what's going on here. Because this is Moses um, teaching in the Pentateuch about giving her certificate of divorce. And this is what Jesus is kind of paraphrasing is verses 1 through 5 when he says, It's also been said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give it, her a certificate of divorce. Um, this is what it says. Jesus is kind of shorthanding this quote here in 24, 1 through 5. It says, When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house. If she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the latter man, the second one, hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce, so she's now been divorced twice, um, and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter man dies who took her to be his wife, then the former husband, the first, who sent her away, may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled, meaning after she has been with someone else sexually. For that is an abomination before the Lord. And you shall not bring sin upon the land that your Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. Now, um, back up to 31. Let me clarify a little, a little uh, misunderstanding there in verse 1. It says, For when a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor, listen to this, he, if she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her. Now, there is two schools of thought. Now, you've got to remember, this is written by Moses, and now Jesus is talking to first century Jews. And what had happened here is that there were really two um, major thoughts um, in, in the Jewish school of thought, two major thoughts. One was called the Hillel, one was called the Shammai, um, and one was a very liberal mis, uh, understanding of this text, and one was still a very conservative. And the idea was, um, without getting into tons of like details, basically one was saying that you can um, divorce your wife in the case of sexual morality, which is basically what Christ is teaching. The other, which is the more liberal, was saying, you can divorce her for any reason. She burns your toast, get her out of there. You know, you, you find some indecency in her. If all of a sudden you just find yourself unattracted to her, you can throw her out. Um, it's no big deal. And so Christ is taking that second idea, which is a total misunderstanding of Deuteronomy 24, and saying, but I say to you, you have totally misunderstood what the point of this is. Now, um, we're going to get into, just briefly, I'm not going to totally like drain the life out of Matthew 19 when I get to it, but I do want to show you one thing about why the certificate of divorce has been given. But before we do that, I want to talk about the certificate of divorce um, that was given to the woman, and it gave her the right to remarry. Um, it freed her from the claim of the husband. Um, the certificate of divorce was not something that God saw as a good thing. I know Moses is saying, if she found some indecency in her, then you can give her a certificate of divorce. Let's just say it's on the conservative. If she has committed some type of sexual morality against you, um, Moses is saying that you can write her a certificate of divorce. But God is not saying that this is necessarily a good thing. Instead, this writing of a certificate of divorce is a concession to sin. It is a concession to sin. We know this um, because of Matthew 19. He is writing this because of the effects of sin and the brokenness 
that sexual morality brings into a marriage. Let's look over really briefly over to Matthew chapter 19, 15 chapters forward. um, And let's just look at um, why I'm saying this before we jump back over to Matthew 5. And as I said, I'm going to unpack Matthew 19 completely as we get to it. Um, But look at... uh, Look at, we're basically going to be in verses 1 through 8, and we're going to stop at 8. It says this, Now when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea, but beyond the Jordan, and large crowds followed him and healed them. And Pharisees came up to him. Remember, Pharisees always wanted to trap Jesus. Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? So you can already see where their ideas and what their, their thoughts are. And he says, have you not read, Jesus is going to answer this idea, have you not read who created them from the beginning, made them male and female, and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. So Jesus answers this idea about divorce, um, referring back to Genesis 2, specifically, specifically talking about when man and woman come together, they're one. And he, and he wants them to understand um, this oneness is not just something that man has put together, but God has put together. And so since God has made man and woman together as one, um, that is significant. That is huge. And so he's answered the question. He says, can we divorce for any wife? Well, Jesus appeals to Genesis 2, and he says, um, a man shall not leave his father and mother, shall hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but are one flesh. And then he quotes this again. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. End of discussion. Answer given. Your answer's there. So, can we divorce for any reason? God has said from the beginning that the two shall become one flesh. That's his answer. He's done. Like, in Jesus' idea, the conversation's over. He's given the answer. Can we divorce? If God said you've become one, then you become one just to give you an idea of the seriousness of marriage in God's eyes. Now, the Pharisees don't like the answer. So they're going to push a little more. Jesus has answered, but they don't like it. So they're going to push a little bit more, and they're going to say, well, Deuteronomy 24, Jesus, look what they say. Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? Now, that's a little bit of a misunderstanding. He's not commanding them to give a certificate of divorce. He's saying if he's found an, an indecency in her, specifically what we can know from Matthew 5 and even the context of all the Old Testament, sexual immorality. But remember, Jesus has answered. Marriage is permanent. Two become one flesh. Let not man separate. So Jesus is going to answer this question about the certificate of divorce, but notice his answer. Um, and this is why I say... Um, it was a, the certificate of a divorce was a concession to sin, not a, yeah, just go ahead and do it. This is what, what about the certificate of divorce in verse 8? And this is where we're going to stop before we go back to Matthew 5. Notice Jesus' answer. Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wife. But from the beginning, it wasn't so. The reason why Moses gave this is because you're sinful. That's not, the, that's not what it was supposed to be. This idea of giving it a concession, uh, a certificate of a divorce is a concession because you're sinful. If you weren't so sinful, you would see that I've already answered you in, by quoting Genesis 2. What man and woman has come together as one flesh, let them not separate. So it was not to be so that man would ever separate. Even in the case of sexual morality. Now, this is pretty heavy. 
let's just understand a little bit about the first century Jews. Um, we know that at the time, because of this school of thought, that divorce and remarriage were held widely among the first century Jews. Um, and wrongfully, they were accepting this practice of basically divorce for any reason. And so Jesus is wanting to correct that. He's not wanting them to think that just because your wife burned your toast or because all of a sudden you're not attracted to her anymore that you can just dump her and find someone else. Much like today, divorce and remarriage was practiced a a lot then. Much like today, let me just give you a few stats um, from Barna and then we'll keep going just to kind of let us see how applicable this teaching is even for us today. Um, Stats are that... Four out of five people in the United States will get married. Four out of five people. So 80% of everyone that lives in America will eventually get married. That's good news for those that are single and desiring to be married. Uh, It looks like more than likely you will be. So um, it's going to happen. I didn't even meet Christy until I was 21. I never thought it was going to happen. But I met her at 21 and got married at 23. So um, if you're under 21, you well, even if you're over, you have hope. All right. um, So here's some more stats. Uh, One-third of people in America get divorced at least once. And this is increasing at least once. One third of people in America get get divorced at least once. And this is increasing. Um, The median age of divorce, which is just kind of the average uh, for men is 31 and for women is 29. Um, So I'm 36 now and I have seen um, already friends of mine of whom Christy and I were even in their weddings who have experienced divorce now. And so if you've been married or you're of any age or you know anyone, you've already started seeing more than likely some of these things kind of happening um, around you. Now here's the interesting part, not just about divorce, but also remarriage and how it maybe affects some of the kids. In 1960, in 1960, 87%, this is a very high percentage, 87% of children grew up in a home with both parents in 1960. And then in 1969, um, I wasn't alive then, um, but in 1969, then came in the no-fault divorce, which means uh, you can divorce for any reason. It doesn't have to necessarily be a reason. And then in 1969, when this no-fault divorce was instituted, um, we can see that divorce has become much more uh, common. And now, from 87% of children... Uh, growing up in both of their parents, it's now down to, in the present, 64% of children grow up in the same parents. Um, and so it's, it's, it's fallen significantly, and more than likely it will continue to fall. So this idea is not just something that kind of is really, really ran- running rampant in the first century where divorce for any reason was happening, but it's also even the case today. So that's why um, it's important that we have a good understanding of this. Now, Verse 32 is important. Jesus says, but I say to you, I want to kind of unpack phrase by phrase with this verse 32. But I say to you, um, Jesus in saying, but I say to you is showing that he does not like, nor does he approve of this practice of divorce that was taking place. His desire is to give them a proper understanding of this teaching. And what was going on in Deuteronomy Deuteronomy, (laughs) um, 24 Um, where a couple things were happening. Um, First of all, women were being taken advantage of terribly. 
they were being taken advantage of terribly. Women didn't have the same kind of rights as men. And so um, if a man wanted to issue it, and, and notice that it wasn't, this right was not given to women to, to issue a certificate of divorce for their husband who maybe wasn't taking care of himself or didn't know how to, whatever. The women had no right to do that. It was just um, the men who had the right to issue it. And so women were being taken advantage of absolutely terribly. Um, almost every woman would absolutely seek remarriage if they were divorced because it was basically a means of survival. They needed to have someone that they were married to in order to be able to live and probably have care for their children. Um, also, the second thing is not only is Jesus wanting to address women not being taken care of, but secondly, um, people were continually sinning by getting divorced and remarried. Because sin is never okay with Jesus. He's going to address it. They were continually sinning. Every time you sin, at least in the case where it doesn't meet the exception clause, every time you divorce, you sin. And then, not only have you sinned by divorce, if you two get remarried, he's also telling us at the end of 32 that when you remarry, you're committing adultery, and that's a sin as well. So sin was just becoming, becoming rampant. We can see the effects of sin um, in our lives. And so... Jesus wanting to address the fact that sin is never, ever okay. Um, D.A. Carson says, It follows, therefore, that marrying, as we see, but I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual morality, makes her commit adultery. D.A. Carson says this, It follows, therefore, that marrying a divorcee is likewise committing adultery. Before God, he is, in fact, marrying another man's wife. Um, except in the case of sexual morality. And this is where it says, um, everyone who divorces his wife, except in the case of sexual morality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now, let's unpack this little phrase after this. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife... Now, this is interesting language, very interesting language, because usually we say, you can get a divorce if adultery happens. Now, you should notice that the word adultery is used in the sentence. Second, but not first. It doesn't say, but I say to you, um, whoever divorces his wife, except on the ground of adultery, makes her commit adultery. It says, except on the case of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. There is a word adultery, moikeia, but instead he uses sexual morality, porneia, which is interesting that he doesn't say, whoever, uh, anyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of adultery, makes her commit adultery. He uses porneia. This is a, a much larger kind of junk drawer word for sexual morality, which includes many things. Um, it includes uh, prostitution, incest, premarital sex, homosexuality, um, and let's not forget the, the context of the previous verses where he's also talking about lust um, being equated with adultery. So um, certainly we would say that if your spouse commits lust against you and that they've committed adultery, that we would say, we wouldn't say, well, go ahead and divorce them. They committed adultery. So we can see even more the, the very concrete idea that God has intended for marriage to be permanent with, even there, if there's been a sin against you. Now, I know that there's exception clause, which we're going to talk about here in just a second. But the first thing that we have to see is that Jesus is very much commi committed to um, us having a heart change, not just obeying the letter of the law. Now... Whoever marries, verse 32, whoever, last phrase, whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. 
Um, and there's really three views on how to understand this. Three different views on how to understand the th- sentence. Whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. And you've got to say, what do you mean by divorced woman? What do you mean by divorced woman? Do you mean divorced because adultery has happened to her? Or do you mean divorced because the husband just wanted to uh, divorce her? So there's really three views here. Um, they're pretty obvious. The first one is that... Um, Anyone who has been divorced can get remarried for any reason, and it's okay. The second idea is that um, if you've been divorced and adultery was committed against you, then you're free to remarry. And the third idea is even if adultery has happened in the marriage, that you still can't get divorced, that you have to stay. Um, And all three of these, um, I think the first one really... Um, doesn't carry much weight. I think the first one uh, is not necessarily a great argument. There's not really much scripture that's going to back that up that, um, that says just for any reason you can get divorced and get remarried, anything you want. Um, we, we think that it's kind of silly in Deuteronomy 24 where if the husband just didn't like looking at her anymore if he, or if she burned his toast, um, we wouldn't, I, I don't know anyone, I've never met anyone that would say, yeah, that's a valid divorce. So really the second and the third one are the ones that are kind of more... Um, lots and lots and lots of debate. Um, And I will say that the second one, which is um, where the exception clause is upheld, where if there's a divorce and then it was because of adultery, then the woman is free to remarry. That is where the majority of people who are are, um, all throughout the last 2,000 years are falling. And and just to give you some ideas, as I was studying D.A. Carson, John R.W. Stott, Sinclair Ferguson, Martin Lloyd-Jones, and just a ton of people fall into that second category where in the case of adultery, you can be remarried and you are free to remarry. I still have to ask the question, what about the party who did the adultery? Are they free to remarry? I would guess not. Um, But um, the third one, is, which is the minority view, which is that you cannot remarry. Um, as a matter of fact, you should not ever get divorced. Even if adultery has happened to you, you should not divorce. And if you do divorce, you are only free to remarry your very first spouse. And um, the people who hold this ground this back into um, a couple of things. They look at the book of Hosea, and they say where, um, although Gomer prostituted herself out, God, um, who was... Hosea, you know, never, never divorced her, always kept her. And that's a picture of God and Israel or God in the church and God in Christ Jesus will never leave his church no matter how many times she prostitutes herself out, no matter how many times she adulterates herself out. The whole picture of marriage is that Christ in the church and that we are always supposed to look to the illustration of Christ in the church and Jesus will never leave his bride. Therefore, we should never ever consider no matter what sin or offense has been done against us because we are a picture of a greater illustration that we should never ever divorce. Those are the three views. And to say with absolute 100% authority that my view is correct would be completely arrogant. It would be completely arrogant. I do have a strong view. Um, and there are people that hold the minority view as, as I was studying this week, like John Piper, James Boyce, and some others. Um, so w- what's the point then? What's, what's the point of trying to understand this? What are some things that we can learn here? As we know... Um, Malachi says God hates divorce, and the reason why God hates divorce is because it distorts the gospel. Um, the gospel is that Christ will never leave you. He's died for you to, to make you um, 
holy and precious in his sight without blemish and that he'll never leave you. He's, he's bought you and that you're his and no matter what you do. And so he'll never leave you. So these are some of the things that we should learn from this text in regard to marriage. First is in Christ's mind, the design for marriage is permanent commitment for marriage. It's a permanent commitment for marriage. The second thing is that Jesus is definitely prohibiting this any kind of divorce on demand and um, just for any reason. He's definitely prohibiting that, of which the consequences, if any divorce on demand, becomes disastrous for family life. We know that it is usually a huge deal in the life of children whenever there's divorce, and especially in any kind of divorce on demand. Um, the second, the, I'm sorry, the third thing that he's want us to see is that Jesus shows us that divorce for unbiblical grounds, unbiblical grounds, divorce for any reason, is definitely a sin and also implicates others if you get remarried because they've become adulterers. These are three things we can, without question, no one would argue that those are three teachings from this text. So, what about those in this room who have been divorced, who have parents that have been divorced, who have a brother or sister who have been divorced. And what's, what's really the point that we can get from this? Um, if you've been divorced and been remarried, then I'm not saying you need to go back to your first marriage. I think that if you are married now, you make your marriage right now the most Christ-centering, God-honored, God-honoring marriage that you're in. And if a problem arises, if a problem arises the best counsel that anyone can get, even if it meets the qualifications of the exception clause, the, the best counsel anyone can give you is seek reconciliation because that is the best picture of the gospel. That is the best picture of the gospel is a husband and wife being reconciled no matter what sin has been committed against them. However, what if you have been divorced? What if you do get a divorce? Then here's something that we have to take into consideration. And it's rooted back in the Beatitudes. The gospel is bigger than divorce. If you've been divorced, the gospel is bigger. When it tells us that you are now pure in heart, as it says in verse 8, it's, it's definitely taken into consideration the fact that you may have been divorced before and now you're remarried and you have that sin. You are now declared by Christ, if you've put your faith in Christ and trust in Him, pure in heart. You are righteous before Him. Divorce is not a sin that is just so large that the gospel doesn't completely swallow it and forgive as well. There is no accident that Christ opens up his most famous sermon with the Beatitudes. He wants us to know that the gospel is enormous. And so as we look at the gospel and we see this, the good news is that as Christians and the church being the bride of Christ, that we are as a church the bride and Jesus as our husband, the gospel is that he will never leave us. The gospel is that even if we do sin grievously against him, he will not divorce his bride. As a matter of fact, that sin has been paid for at the cross. He died for us eternally securing our salvation eternally securing our salvation. And if we trust Him with our salvation, we know that we will be with Him, that we are completely forgiven. So no matter where you are in life, there's no question that every one of us probably has been affected.
the gospel is bigger than this. The gospel is bigger than any sin, even the sin of divorce. Without the exception clause. So then, I want to talk about the destination then of the emotion that you might be feeling if you've been affected by this. The destination of the emotion. Let's say your emotion is one of sadness. Well, 2 Corinthians tells us that God's a God of all comfort. The destination of that sadness is to go to Christ and tell Him, Jesus, this divorce, whether it's me or my parents or my brother and sister, has just made me so tremendously upset. And He comes and says, I'm the God of all comfort. Let me comfort you. If you're... If your emotion is one of anger, if you're extremely angry at your spouse for divorcing you or your previous spouse, you're angry at your previous spouse for sinning against you. If you're angry at your parents because when you were eight, they sat you down on the couch and they said, we're getting a divorce. You're going to have to spend half the time with mommy and half the time with daddy. Or you're, you're, you're eight years old and you're trying to figure this out and you still feel anger towards them. Realize this. That all the wrath of God, all the anger of God towards sin has been poured out on Jesus. And that you don't have to feel angry towards that person anymore. Because all the wrath of God has been poured out already for sin. If you feel the emotion of love. Because you've realized the truth. That even though you're sad, God's a God of all comfort. That even though you're angry, and now you realize that all of God's righteous anger has been poured out, and you are free not to be angry anymore, and that frees you up to feel love, well, that is the destination. Transform your emotions to love and point them to Christ, who is the author and perfecter of our faith, who deserves all the glory. All of our emotions that we feel are to be worshipped for Christ for the gospel, even in the midst of terrible pain. If we've experienced something as emotional as divorce. This issue, this thing that Christ addresses was definitely a, a, a huge thing in the first century and it's no doubt that it is today. We know that. Some, some statisticians say that half of America has been divorced once and that it's not even different in the, in the church, in the Christian church, that half of Christians have been divorced. Um, that's what I've heard. And so we need to remember that marriage is an illustration of something greater. Marriage is an illustration of something greater. That the husband takes all of his cues from Christ. The way that he is to respond to his bride is by looking at Christ and looking at how Christ responds to his bride. And the same thing for the church. The, the, the wife looks at the church and takes her cues from the church and lives in such a way the way the church acts and the way the church responds to Jesus. And in that relationship of Christ and the church, one thing is overwhelmingly obvious and joyfully and beautifully obvious that Jesus will never leave his bride. 
ever. And so, the counsel that you are to give, the counsel that I am to give, the counsel that we're always to give to anyone, is to put the gospel on display and have reconciliation. I know that that's not always possible. And that's why the gospel is bigger than that. And so wherever you find yourself now emotionally in this, whether you've been divorced or whether you're having marital troubles or your sister or your father or whatever, the truth is this. Whomever you are married to now, make this marriage the most Christ-honoring, Christ-exalting marriage you can make it. Make this marriage the one that you will live out Matthew 28. That the two of you will go and take the gospel to the nations. That's why we're married. Because we have a partner in ministry. And commit to each other today. Right now or later this afternoon or sometime this week. Commit to each other today. Whatever you sin against me, I will forgive you. Because Genesis 2 says that we're one. Because Christ and the church are one. Let me read you one text and I'm going to close with this. This is in Colossians chapter 1. And this is Paul writing about what's true of us who are in Christ. Verse 21 says, And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, if you believe the gospel, this is what's now true. He has now reconciled, and this is what's true of the church. He is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, his death on the cross, in order to present you, in order to present his bride to himself. This is the language. To present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. The truth is, Christian, Christ follower, believer in Jesus, you are now holy, blameless, and above reproach before him. That's reason to worship. That is reason to celebrate. You have been declared by the God of creation if you are in Christ and trusted the gospel no matter what sins you've committed, whether it's divorce or whether it's anything, any kind of sexual morality or any kind of anything, lying as we talked about earlier, you are now holy, blameless, and above reproach before Him. Therefore, based on that, live out the gospel. Live as one who has been declared holy. Live as one who has been declared blameless. You're free now in Christ to do that. We're going to go into our time of worship. And so however the Holy Spirit's leading you, whether you need to sit and pray or just stand and worship, ask that you would be obedient to the leading of the Spirit and then worship with us through song. Let's pray. Lord, I know that I'm sinful and I know that I never communicate 100% effectively. And in a case like this, I'm sure that 
I have not said things as great as they could have been said. And so, Lord, I pray by the power of the Spirit that anywhere that I have misspoke that wasn't in line with Scripture, that you would give all of us tender hearts to receive the truth and all of us to extend um, sensitivity towards each other and forgiveness towards each other. I pray, Lord, that... um, the truth of the text would land on us right now and that we would want to um, we'd want to rest in the gospel knowing that we are 100% completely forgiven in Christ and that our marriages would put the gospel in Christ on display and that an unbelieving world would look at us and the way we live even in the context of marriage and see Christ and would put their faith in Christ because of the way we live as husband and wife and because of the way we tell the truth. We love you, God. Be with us now as we respond in worship. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.